0: Decision podcasts by the New York Prosecutors Training Institute are made possible by Voice Pods. Convert your text to voice at voicepods.com. Read this decision at NIPT Law. www.nypti.org law. People versus Howard Powell. Decided on November 18, 2021. DeFiori, Chief Judge. False confessions elicited during custodial interrogations do exist. In People v. Badesi, we recognized that the phenomenon of false confessions during custodial interrogation is common knowledge, and we opined that expert psychological testimony relevant to the defendant and the custodial interrogation at issue could be admissible to educate a jury about those factors of personality and situation that the relevant scientific community considers to be associated with false confessions. The admissibility and limits of the expert's testimony lie primarily in the sound discretion of the trial judge, and the expert may not render an opinion as to the truthfulness or falsity of the confession. The primary issue presented in this case is whether the trial court, in denying defendant's Badesi application, erred in precluding the testimony of defendant's proffered expert witness on false confessions after holding Fry and Huntley hearings. On this record, the trial court's determination was not an abuse of discretion as a matter of law. I. Defendant was charged with having committed two elevator robberies over the course of three days. During the first incident on February 23, 2010, H.T. was robbed at knife point in an elevator of a building in the Queensbridge housing complex. Two days later, a second individual, E.Y., was robbed by a man displaying what appeared to be a box cutter in an elevator of the same housing complex. EY first encountered the robber, whom she described as a six-foot-tall, light-skinned black male in his thirties, carrying an umbrella, when he asked her to light his cigarette as she exited a local grocery store at about 3 p.m. on the afternoon of February 25. As EY walked back to her nearby apartment, the same man followed her into her building. The two entered the elevator and, when the doors closed, the man physically attacked the victim. The robbery, including a face-to-face struggle between the victim and her assailant that lasted more than two minutes, was captured on the building's video surveillance system. Although the perpetrator's face is not clearly visible to the viewer of the video, the film depicts a tall man wearing a hooded, dark-colored coat and hat, carrying a large black umbrella with a curved handle. EY's assailant fled with her electronic benefits transfer, EBT, card. Surveillance footage from a nearby deli, recorded at approximately 4 p.m., depicts a tall man similar in build and appearance to the man who committed the robbery, wearing the same type of clothing and carrying a large umbrella. Attempt to use the stolen EBT card a short time after the robbery. The card was declined, and the man then attempted to use it in the ATM. The surveillance footage from the well-lit store shows portions of the man's face from multiple angles. By interviewing witnesses and matching photographs with the surveillance footage, the police identified defendant as a suspect. On March 1, 2010, defendant was arrested on the fifth floor of a building in the Queensbridge housing complex for possession of crack cocaine and was transported to the local precinct. There, he was interviewed about the robberies that took place on February 23 and 25. The following day, defendant made the two statements that are in issue here, The first statement, elicited during the morning hours, was handwritten by defendant. Without providing any detail, defendant admitted to having committed robberies, claimed to have been under the influence of drugs and indicated he wanted to help the police. The second statement was elicited in the afternoon, after defendant had been identified in lineups by both victims. The statement prepared and typewritten by the detective assigned to the case summarized defendant's detailed oral statement. In which he admitted following the victim, EY, who was carrying groceries, and robbing her of her EBT card after a struggle in the elevator. Defendant again claimed to have been messed up on drugs and that he wanted to help the police. He signed the statement on the second page, which contained no factual allegations. Defendant was indicted for two counts of robbery in the first degree. Prior to trial, Defendant served a Corporal 250.10 notice of intent to introduce psychiatric evidence for the purpose of demonstrating that he was suffering from psychiatric conditions that adversely affected the voluntariness and reliability of the interrogations conducted. In support of his position, defendant submitted medical records of his history of a seizure disorder, depression, and schizophrenia, as well as a forensic psychological report prepared by Sanford L. Drob, Ph.D who conducted a clinical evaluation of defendant. Dr. Draub characterized defendant's intellectual function to be within the borderline range, with an IQ of 78. He concluded that defendant had several mental health issues, including possible paranoid ideation and substance abuse issues. Dr. Draub opined that the combination of attendant factors, including defendant's mental illness and cognitive deficits, could make him vulnerable to suggestion in a custodial setting. Huntley hearing. Defendant moved to suppress the two noticed statements. At the Huntley hearing, Detective Grinder and defendant testified to contradictory narratives of the circumstances surrounding the custodial interrogation. Each version is summarized here, as is necessary to evaluate the trial court's Badesi determination. Detective Grinder testified that defendant was arrested at about 2.20 p.m. on March 1. While defendant was held in the precinct's interrogation room, One of his hands was handcuffed to the wall. Grinder, who arrived at the precinct about two hours after the arrest, advised defendant of his Miranda rights later that same evening at about 6.30 p.m. Defendant signed and initialed the Miranda card, waiving his rights, but did not make any admissions on March 1. When told his arrest was made in connection with robberies committed in the Queensbridge housing complex, defendant became visibly agitated and denied any involvement. The detective, who intended to conduct lineups the next day, ended the interview. Upon defendant's request, Detective Grinder traveled to defendant's friend's home, where he retrieved four bottles of medication prescribed to defendant. The detective returned to the precinct and vouchered the medications. He could not recall whether defendant took the medication. Shortly thereafter, at about 11.50 p.m., defendant was transported to Central Booking for lodging that night. On the morning of March 2, at approximately 9.30 a.m., Detective Grinder and another detective transported defendant from central booking back to the precinct. Defendant was given breakfast, coffee and a bagel. Defendant's demeanor was now calm, and he agreed to speak with detectives. Miranda warnings were not reissued, nor was the interview recorded at about 10 a.m. The detectives began discussing the charges and informed defendant that he would be required to participate in lineup identification procedures. Detective Grinder supplied defendant with pen and paper and left him alone in the room where he handwrote the first statement. Two lineups, each with six participants, were conducted on March 2 at 12:30 p.m. and both victims identified defendant. Shortly after the lineups were conducted, and while in the interrogation room with the two detectives at about 1 p.m., Defendant asked the detectives if he had been identified by the victims. The detectives informed him that he had been identified by both victims and asked if he wanted to make any further statements. Defendant then admitted that he had committed four robberies, including the two charged here. He asked Grinder to write out the confessions for him, as he was not a good writer, and proceeded to give the second statement orally. Grinder, who did not take any notes, later typed up the confession which defendant signed on the blank, second page. Detective Grinder testified that he spoke with defendant on and off, the whole day, on March 2 and that he provided defendant a meal from Burger King. He further testified that defendant did not request any medical assistance and did not appear to be experiencing any type of drug withdrawal. At about 8.30 p.m. that night, defendant was returned to central booking. Testifying on his own behalf. Defendant gave a very different version of the interrogation events. As to his background, he testified that he had low intelligence, suffered from seizures, and had a history of schizophrenia, depression, and substance abuse. He had been prescribed various medications for those conditions but the last time he took his medications was at about 8 p.m. the night before his arrest, February 28. On the morning of March 1, defendant ingested heroin and crack cocaine. After his arrest that afternoon, he was feeling paranoid and scared. And, later that day, at some time between 4 o'clock and 5 p.m., while he was handcuffed to the wall in the precinct interrogation room, he had a seizure and urinated on himself. He asked Detective Grinder for his medication and Grinder told him that he would not get the medication or medical treatment unless defendant cooperated. Further, according to defendant's testimony, Grinder threatened that if he asked to go to the hospital again, Grinder would make sure Defendant did not go before a judge for four or five days. Grinder then left Defendant to go to an outside location to retrieve Defendant's medication at approximately 9 p.m. when he returned. Grinder placed the medication at the end of the table in the room, out of Defendant's reach. Defendant claimed he received the medication the next day, March 2, but only after he gave the police the handwritten statement, which he denied was truthful. Defendant testified that he only wrote the statement to appease the detective because he was deprived of his medication and food and was scared that he would have another seizure. On cross-examination, defendant alleged that, on the night of March 1, between 7 o'clock and 8 p.m., while in the interrogation room, Detective Grinder hit him in the head four or five times. Later that night, when he was brought back to central booking for lodging, he saw medical personnel but, other than providing basic history, He did not mention anything about his mental health or seizures because he did not feel that he could tell them what was going on. Defendant, when shown the exhibit of the typewritten, signed confession, repeatedly denied that he made those admissions or that he had ever seen or heard th. Oh, say statements. He testified that after the lineups, he simply signed the blank second page. Notwithstanding his concession that it was his signature and initials on the Miranda card, he claimed that he did not receive Miranda warnings until about 6 p.m. on March 2, after he signed the second page of the typewritten statement, which contained no factual allegations. The hearing court credited defendants' testimony only to the extent it did not conflict with Grinders and denied the motion to suppress the statements. Fry hearing. Citing to People v. Badesi, defendant moved to admit the testimony of Allison Redlick, Ph.D., as an expert witness, to educate the jury, on factors that were generally accepted in the relevant scientific community as associated with false confessions. Defendant attached a 12-page report from the highly credentialed Dr. Redlick based on her review of the Huntley hearing testimony, police reports, and Dr. Drob's report. In order to resolve the conflicting witness accounts of the custodial interrogation in her report, Dr. Redlick credited defendant's account, which she found, more telling, To demonstrate general acceptance in the field of false confession research, attached to the motion were several publications, including some that were co-authored by Dr. Redlick. The trial court ordered a Fry hearing to address the admissibility and scope of the proposed testimony. At the hearing, Dr. Redlick was found to be an expert in the field of false confession studies. As stated in her report, and mirroring the expert testimony proffered in Badesi, Dr. Redlich set forth the three types of false confessions. Voluntary, not coerced, could be offered to protect another or attain notoriety, coerced compliant, where the suspect's will is overborne, and internalized through deceptive interrogation techniques, the suspect comes to believe he or she is guilty. She also set forth the paradigm of a series of dispositional and situational factors that have been recognized as contributing to the risk of false confessions relevant to the facts of this case Dr Redlick identified three dispositional factors that defendant displayed based on his medical reports mental illness intellectual disability and substance abuse as to situational factors Dr Redlick found that defendant was in custody and questioned intermittently for over 24 hours that his statements evidenced minimization by the reference to his drug abuse and that the statements admitting to the crimes charged did not provide any information that was not already known to the police. Related to these situational factors she focused primarily on the technique, a nine-step method of police interrogation based on psychological principles, which she opined was widely used. As part of the technique, the suspect is isolated and confronted with the interrogator's alleged knowledge of his guilt. The interrogator then engages in tactics like presentation of false evidence, minimizing the suspect's responsibility for the crime, or theme development, making the suspect more compliant in offering a confession that mitigates his role. Dr. Redlick opined that these techniques could produce a false confession when employed on innocent individuals, especially where other dispositional or situational risk factors were present. On cross-examination, Dr. Redlick conceded that she was unaware of the type of training, if any, members of the New York City Police Department received in interrogation techniques, but that, even if they were not specifically trained in the Reed technique, all interrogations pretty much follow the same model. She also testified that, in her role as a research psychologist, she analyzed videos of actual interrogations, placed reliance on self-reporting from subjects and reviewed legal cases. When queried as to laboratory studies in her field, she identified a study in which her team interviewed defendants in the criminal justice system, including inmates in the Santa Clara County Jail who had confessed to crimes, whether truly or falsely, based on their self-reporting about their experiences with interrogation. The subjects all had mental illness and 86% of them had a known serious mental disorder. They were paid for their cooperation and, without the presence of counsel, were asked whether they had ever confessed to or pleaded guilty to a crime they did not commit. No measure was taken to ascertain if their self-reports were true or false. She also testified to two additional studies, the alt-key paradigm, and the cheating paradigm, that attempted to use deceptive tactics to induce false confessions in a laboratory-like environment. She conceded that the alt-key study was flawed and no longer used and that the cheating paradigm was distinguishable from police interrogation dr redlick noted that laboratory studies in the field of false confessions are not akin to the analysis done in other scientific fields such as dna evidence where the tests conducted pursuant to an accepted methodology can be replicated to achieve the same results laboratory studies in the field of false confessions are likewise distinct from studies done in the field of misidentification as there are practical difficulties and ethical considerations in recreating the circumstance of a real-life custodial interrogation in a laboratory setting. She further acknowledged that, as to the laboratory studies in her field, there are issues of external validity and the ability to translate the results to the criminal justice system. Following the hearing, the court denied defendant's request to call Dr. Redlick as a witness at trial, finding that, based on the evidence presented defendant failed to meet his burden of establishing that Dr. Redlick's testimony in the area of false confessions was readily acceptable in the scientific community. The court deemed the showing that the phenomenon of false confessions exists and that interrogation tactics may increase the likelihood of same insufficient to sustain this burden. The court found Dr. Redlick's testimony in many respects unpersuasive and noted her failure to establish a known or potential rate of error and her lack of personal knowledge of the circumstances of defendant's confessions. The court also referenced Dr. Redlick's strong reliance on the three laboratory studies to form her opinions, noting that the alt-key study had been discredited and that the cheating study was inapplicable. Significantly, the court observed that defendant failed to establish that his statement was induced by any of the factors outlined in Badesi. However, recognizing that defendant may possess the dispositional characteristics identified in Badesi, the court left open the possibility that a different expert could testify, one who had personal knowledge of defendant's medical history and the circumstances of the case that may have led to a false confession. At the next appearance, the court explained that it did not dispute that the science may be there with respect to false confessions, but that it did not think Dr. Redlick was the proper witness to educate the jury about the phenomenon given in part her testimony that some of the studies on which she relied had since been disavowed the court clarified that its decision was based on its determination that dr redlick lacked the necessary expertise rather than the fact that she had not interviewed defendant defense counsel then advised the court that he did not intend to call dr drop the psychiatric examiner whose report on defendant's dispositional factors was relied upon by dr redlick because defendant was competent to testify at trial as to his own mental conditions. At trial, defendant's testimony as to the circumstances of his custodial interrogation was consistent with the testimony he gave at the Huntley hearing. He testified that his first handwritten statement, which contained no detail linking him to any particular robbery, was coerced, given by him in an attempt to escape the interrogation and get his medication. He testified that he never made the second detailed, typewritten statement and maintained it was wholly manufactured by Detective Grinder. He further claimed all the statements were elicited before he was advised of his Miranda rights. The victim, E.Y., testified at trial and identified defendant as the robber. During cross-examination, defendant elicited inconsistencies between the description she provided to police and his physical appearance. In particular, he was six feet four inches tall as opposed to six feet, and was significantly older than her description of the perpetrator. Defendant also testified that he was missing 12 teeth in 2010, a circumstance that was not noted by the victim. The surveillance footage from the elevator and the deli were admitted into evidence and played for the jury. As required by constitutional law in cases where the voluntariness of a statement is placed in issue at the trial. See Jackson v. Dino. People v. Graham. The jury was instructed that, before they could consider defendant's statement as evidence, they had to find the people proved beyond a reasonable doubt that it was voluntarily made. This instruction required the jury to find that defendant received, understood, and waived his Miranda rights, or the statement must be disregarded. The jury was further instructed that they must determine whether any statement was obtained by improper conduct or undue pressure, Factoring in such dispositional factors as defendant's intelligence and his physical and mental condition, as well as situational considerations such as the length of time defendant was questioned and the treatment he received from the police during that time. The court also gave the jury an expanded eyewitness identification charge, including a charge on cross-race effect. See People v. Boone. The jury convicted defendant of robbery in the first degree. Defendant then pleaded guilty to an additional count of first-degree robbery to resolve the count of the indictment involving the robbery of HT, which had previously been severed. The appellate division affirmed, holding that it was a provident exercise of discretion for Supreme Court to deny defendant's motion to present expert witness testimony on the phenomenon of false confessions because defendant failed to demonstrate the proposed testimony was relevant to the circumstances of his case. A judge of this court granted defendant leave to appeal Two, the admissibility and scope of expert testimony are subject to the discretion of the trial court. See People v. Lee limiting our scope of review to whether the determination to exclude the proffered expert testimony was an abuse of that discretion as a matter of law. Here the court was required to determine under Fry whether the proposed expert opinion testimony was based on principles and methodologies generally accepted within the relevant scientific community. In addition, even where based on reliable principles and methods, an expert's opinion may be precluded if it presents too great an analytical gap between the data and the opinion proffered, Cornell v 360 W 51st Street Realty, LLC. It is well settled that the inquiry under Frye is separate and distinct from the admissibility question applied to all evidence, whether there is a proper foundation to determine whether the accepted methods were appropriately employed in a particular case. People v. Brooks, quoting Parker v. Mobile Oil Corp. Further, particularly in the social science arena, we have measured the reliability of novel hypotheses and theories, not just methodologies, against the Fry standard, Cornell. And, under Badesi, in addressing the phenomenon of false confessions, the trial court must also determine whether the same proffered testimony was relevant to the defendant and interrogation before the court. Badesi. It is for the trial court in the first instance to determine when jurors are able to draw conclusions from the evidence based on their day to day experience, their common observation, and their knowledge, and when they would be benefited by the specialized knowledge of an expert witness. Lee. Quoting People v. Cronin. We have otherwise characterized this determination as an evaluation of whether the testimony would aid a lay jury in reaching a verdict, quoting People v. Taylor. As we recognized in Badesi in 2012, awareness of the phenomenon of false confessions has evolved to the point of common knowledge, if not conventional wisdom. This, however, does not mean that expert testimony on the theories behind the reasons for false confessions is rendered unnecessary. Certain aspects of the scientific study of the phenomenon might well be outside the ken of the typical juror, see Lee. The proffered psychological expert testimony here is, in certain respects, similar to the expert psychological testimony on rape trauma syndrome addressed in People versus Taylor. That is, the testimony is not addressed to a particular scientific technology or procedure that, when properly performed, will generate results generally accepted as reliable in the scientific community and admitted into evidence to demonstrate an evidentiary fact. See for example People v. Wesley. Rather, it is meant to be used as an informational tool to educate the jury on the causal connection between relevant factors and false confessions outside their ken, and to do so without opining on the particular facts of the case. In Taylor, and the companion case of Banks, for example, We held that the expert testimony was admissible to dispel common misperceptions regarding recognized patterns of post-traumatic behavior on the part of rape victims, Taylor, but not to prove that the victim's behavior was aligned with a common perception that a rape occurred, Banks. Indeed, the latter is akin to an improper bolstering of credibility. Here, the proffered testimony would not have been admissible for the purpose of establishing that a false confession occurred but to educate the jury about the science of the association between psychological risk factors occurring in a particular custodial interrogation and the making of a false confession in order to address common misconceptions about a person making a false admission of criminal conduct on this record the trial court did not abuse its discretion in finding that the proffered testimony would not have aided the jury although dr redlick is an impressively credentialed researcher Properly qualified by the trial court as an expert in her field. The trial court found that her testimony at the Fry hearing revealed her difficulty in linking her research on the possible causes of false confessions to the case at hand. Despite her review of the witness's testimony at the Huntley hearing, she did not explain how her testimony was at all relevant to the circumstances presented by defendant's interrogation, even by crediting defendant's account of the events over Detective Grinders. For instance, defendant flatly denied ever making the second, more detailed, confession. So, expert testimony regarding dispositional and situational factors that create a risk of a false confession has no relevance to the oral or written version of that statement. Moreover, defendant maintained that the first handwritten statement was the product of outright coercion, including a physical assault the night before and the deprivation of food and medicine rather than resulting from psychological coercion of police interrogation that creates the risk of false confession, consistent with a recondite theory of which Dr. Redlick would have testified. There is a difference between the classically, inherently coercive interrogation that produces an involuntary confession, an issue that the jury is well equipped to understand. See for example Blackburn v. Alabama. People v. Anderson and the phenomenon of false confessions involving the interplay of situational and dispositional factors that produce a coercive-compliant false confession from an innocent suspect, an occurrence that the jury may find counterintuitive. Dr. Redlick's written report and her hearing testimony covered a broad spectrum of situational factors, some of which required no explanation to a jury, and others of which had no relevance to defendant or the totality of the circumstances of his interrogation. Dr. Redlick did not anchor her testimony to a possible version of the custodial interrogation as set forth in the Huntley hearing testimony. Rather, she broadly stated that the basic tool of psychological tactics inherent in an interrogation is employed in all human interactions to obtain compliance, a statement entirely consistent with the common sensibility of the jury to discern the effects of the interaction between defendant and the police, absent some extraordinary factor. She then focused heavily on the nine-step read technique, which she presumed was used in the case. As the opinion in Miranda makes unequivocal with its detailed exploration of the read technique, our law has long recognized these specific stratagems may compel the suspect to merely confirm the preconceived story the police seek to have him describe. At bottom, actual evidence that the read technique was used in the interrogation is a necessary predicate for any opinion to be probative evidence on that subject. Dr. Redlick also emphasized situational factors that did not exist in this case, such as sleep deprivation, lying to innocent suspects, presenting false evidence to convince the suspect it is no use to deny culpability and contamination, where the police, and not the defendant, are the source of the information set forth in the confession. Here, the trial court was well within its province to determine that Since neither witness's account at the Huntley hearing presented circumstances supporting the conclusion that the police used these outlined psychological tactics, any expert testimony on that score would be speculative and delivered in a factual vacuum. Notably, no evidence elicited at trial changed this equation to provide any basis for a renewal of the proffer. Dr. Redlick's report stated that the failure of the police to record the interrogation resulted in her uncertainty as to situational factors that may have been present. Video of a past event can certainly enhance the ability of any trier of fact to determine what occurred, and video of a custodial interrogation is a boon to the truth. However, as we have recognized, the neglect to record is not a factor or circumstance that might induce a false confession, Badesi. With respect to defendant's isolation. Dr. Redlick believed it was quite hard to discern the length of the interrogation, asserting that defendant was under custodial arrest for more than 24 hours and that the majority, 80 percent, of proven false confessions had interrogations lasting six or more hours. Despite the witnesses' conflation of the period of arrest and the period of interrogation, under either scenario posited by the police or defendant, defendant was concededly noncompliant the night of his arrest was then lodged overnight at central booking for eight hours and was not the subject of continuous interrogation while at the precinct on March 2nd, nor did he experience the associated risk factor of sleep deprivation. As to certain dispositional risk factors particular to defendant, Dr. Redlick identified cognitive impairment, mental illness and substance abuse. The defense chose to not call the Corporal 250.10 Noticed Psychiatric Examiner as a witness. Instead. Defendant himself testified at trial to the presence of these dispositional factors and was subject to cross-examination, displaying no sign, that he was particularly compliant, that he lacked understanding of the circumstances of the interrogation or that he was impacted by the above dispositional factors, See In any event, defendant's substance abuse was not linked to the circumstances of the confession, as there was no evidence that he was either intoxicated or in withdrawal at the time he was questioned nor did defendant's testimony provide any indication that he was psychologically tricked or induced to believe he had committed the robberies and admitted same. As to the factor of mental illness, Dr. Redlick testified that there was some evidence that there was a link between depression or anxiety and susceptibility to false confessions but then conceded that the evidence is not entirely clear on that. She then went on to suggest that anybody can be rendered vulnerable in the police interrogation situation and an individual did not need to have any identified dispositional characteristic in order to render a false confession the thrust of dr redlick's testimony was that the presence of dispositional factors may be causally linked to false confessions because they may make a vulnerable individual more susceptible to a wide variety of situational factors in the inherently coercive setting of the interrogation relying on the research in her field the witness noted there is no prevalence rate in the millions of cases where a confession occurred but approximated that 15 to 20 percent of the 1,300 documented wrongful conviction cases involved a false confession. In addition, a study in the White Paper analyzing 125 cases of proven false confession cases in the United States between 1971 and 2002 found that 63 percent involved defendants who were under the age of 25. See Law and Human Behavior: A dispositional factor of substantial import. Yet. The witness did not account for defendant's age 51 or his criminal history in relaying these percentages, despite the need at the hearing to demonstrate causative factors in false confession cases she studied. Underscored by Nisi Prius, her own testimony expressed significant uncertainty as to the applicability of laboratory-like studies to real-life custodial interrogation and was not particularly probative of what actually occurred in this case. Although Dr. Redlick's testimony may have been informative, the speculative nature of the testimony and the lack of relevance to the particular circumstances of defendant's interrogation presented the risk that the jury might have been confused or misled rather than aided by the testimony. See, for example, People v. Seferro. The jury should not be encouraged to make a determination in a factual vacuum. That is to say, without evidentiary basis whatsoever, United States v. Red Lightning. Expert testimony on false confession generally should not be permitted in the absence of evidence that interrogation techniques likely to extract a false confession were employed. The trial court properly recognized that proving false confessions occur is not the equivalent of accepting Dr. Redlick's broad unmoored testimony on the science of false confessions and given her difficulty in explaining the external validity of the studies. Her imprecise testimony was insufficient to sustain the burden of establishing general acceptance of the psychological principles she was advocating. Contrary to the dissent's suggestion that the Fry hearing curbs the court's discretionary power in allowing an expert to provide educational background to help the jury better understand the risk factors associated with a psychological phenomenon, as we held in Badesi, The trial court may not abdicate its responsibility to determine the relevancy of the proffered educational testimony to the particulars of the individual case, to wit, defendant and the interrogation before the court. Further our precedent is clear that a Fry hearing is not the end of the court's determination, and the admissibility of social science evidence is a question for the trial court. We do not equivocate as to the existence of the phenomenon of false confessions or the evils, that can result from the interrogation atmosphere, Miranda. Nonetheless, the scientific principles involve more complexity than the general conclusion that false confessions do occur, and the expert is supposed to articulate those principles so a jury can apply the information to the actual evidence in the case, not merely speculate in the absence of that evidence. We therefore hold that there is no abuse of discretion when the trial court disallows expert psychological testimony as to false confessions when it is not relevant to the circumstances of the custodial interrogation in the case at hand. 3. The remaining issue for our review is whether it was an abuse of discretion for the trial court to deny defendants motion to admit expert testimony in the area of eyewitness identification. Prior to trial, defendants sought to admit the testimony of Nancy Franklin, Ph.D. To explain factors affecting the reliability of eyewitness identification, as both robberies involved single witness identifications, made after a brief encounter with an armed stranger of a different race. The court granted the use of an identification expert in the severed trial relating to the robbery against HT but denied the request in the trial of the robbery here at issue, because the identification by EY was corroborated by defendant's statements as well as the surveillance footage. There was no abuse of discretion in the court's determination. The evidence against defendant at trial did not turn solely on the accuracy of the witness's identification, but was corroborated by the surveillance video and defendant's statements, see Legrand. In light of our determination, it is unnecessary to reach defendant's remaining argument. Accordingly, the order of the appellate division should be affirmed, decided November 18, 2021. Decision podcasts by the New York Prosecutors Training Institute are made possible by VoicePods. Convert your text to voice at voicepods.com. Read this decision at NIPTE Law. www.nypti.org slash law.